0: Uh, got another great guest this week, a man who is a legend in the world of MMA, uh, one of the first Hall of Fame inductees for the UFC. He also uh, made quite an impact during the attitude era in the WWF. Ken Shamrock uh, joins us here on PTSM, and we'll get to that conversation momentarily. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, it, it wasn't easy to uh, catch up with Ken Shamrock. Um, Uh, And it was uh, certainly, though, very interesting to hear about his perspective uh, during that time that he spent in the WWE. Um, But you're going to have to bear with us, uh, guys, uh, uh, (laughs) with us on on this this episode. I mean, tracking Ken down was not an easy task. Uh, We actually had his conversation in two parts. The second half was at a location um, that I I really don't know where he was, but I do know that it was very loud. But um, we did get it all in. And Ken shared some great insight into the world of MMA and the time he spent in the WWE. So, with that, let's get to it. My conversation with Ken Shamrock. Ding, ding, ding. I am honored today to have a legend join us. Who, uh, one who has certainly had a tremendous career in the WWE, but who is also known all over the world as one of the greatest MMA fighters ever. And that recognition was confirmed when he became one of the first MMA fighters to ever be inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. Uh, welcome, Ken Shamrock, to Primetime with Sean Mooney. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, and I appreciate that introduction.
0: Well, uh, it's uh, certainly well-deserved. You've had a, a tremendous career and and a, a, a versatile one. You've done so many things. And, uh, Ken, I know you. Uh, a lot of these interviews always start uh, talking about how you grew up, but... Uh, The the point I think that is just so important when we uh, start talking about you and your career is really where you came from. And I saw an interview where you talked about, uh, you know, folks, if you know anything about Ken Shamrock, you know that uh, he came from uh, just incredible beginnings and really just came from nothing and built himself up uh, into uh, one of the greatest fighters ever on the planet. But uh, I think it's just the way you, the way you uh, looked at it and dealt with it all could help anybody no matter what they're doing in life. And I saw an interview where you talked about, you know, when, you are, when you're in those circumstances, uh, basically you come, you, you decide of one of two paths. Either you uh, become a victim in a sense or you find another way and, and survive. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you really mean by that and, and, uh, and how that drove you when you were very, very young?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I came from a situation where, um, you know, my, my biological mother, um, had three young boys all, uh, a year apart. Man. Um, and, and, uh, in, and this was back in 19, you know, sixties, yeah. uh, to, for, for women to have a job, be able to support a family was very difficult. So she, she made ends meet the best way she could, but, um, uh, we were left home a lot and, um, you know, a lot of bad things, different things, uh, that had happened, uh, while we were young and, the thought process uh, and it wasn't one that was consciously made. it was one that was unconsciously made mm-hmm. and it was it was it was a live or die type situation and and in a lot of situations, um, you know it doesn't do any good to lay down and whine about it or cry or or give up because in those situations, that means pretty much that you're dead and because mm-hmm. there's nobody there that's going to help you. Right. Um, Or you just stand up and fight, you know, and, and, and just keep going, just keep moving, keep going and don't la- allow anything to, to stop you from moving forward. Um, and if you've got that kind of mentality and that kind of thought process, then you'll succeed in no matter where or what you're doing. And uh, I believe that's where me and my brothers, when we were young, that's the situation we were in. There was no one there coaching us. There was no one there. You know, in our heads trying to teach us the right way and the wrong way to do things. um but what what we did have in us was that you know we weren't going to lay down and cry about something because that would mean that we would never succeed. Um, we always got up and we fought right, wrong or indifferent. Um, we got up and we fought for everything we had.
0: but Ken and a lot of a lot of people don't make it out of those situations. And do you think that was what was inside of you was it was a genetic? Was it uh, more than that? Because, like I said before, uh, people make a choice, and uh, they do. They either they hit the people that come from those situations. They don't. They don't end up average people. Either they become, like I said, a victim, or they become overachievers. And for you, what do you think it was? Besides just I want to live, but beyond that, because uh, you did much more than than just survive.
1: Well, it's hard to say because when you're actually in that particular situation, I know with me, I always had this desire to be somebody. I always had this desire to want to be great. Even when I was a five-year-old kid, you know, I it just felt like I didn't want to be a nobody. I didn't want to just lay down and be nothing. Mm-hmm. And as I got a little bit older, went through group homes and, and you know, doing everything wrong, but nevertheless still surviving. Yeah. Um, and, and my mom. And watching these football players and these different things like that, I always thought, you know, I could do that. I could be a professional football player, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so I really just I just started just doing things, uh, whether it was, you know, um, fighting or, or or you know, scrapping over a, a sandwich or, or a toy or anything. I always had to figure out a way to win, and in mm-hmm. um, those times, they weren't the right way to do things, but um, uh, for whatever reason in my mind, and my body, it was like the will to win and it, whatever I had to do to win as I got older and you know, I started understanding how life works. I learned how sports worked, uh, through football, you know, I play within the rules and I became relevant. I could get things that I wanted, uh, people. I was important to people because everybody wanted to help me, yeah. uh, because they wanted me to play on game day. So I understood, started to understand at a young age, uh, that I could be relevant, being good at something and Mm. um and so i i took advantage of that i became very good at football and wrestling and um people helped me get good grades so that i could play on those days Um, and went into college play college football um and uh so i started understanding at a young age that being good at something uh, i could leverage that towards people helping me to 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 succeed in life yeah but also c- overcoming
0: great adversity. I think uh, at one point, I think you, you broke your neck or, or something like that when uh, that kind of deterred you, I think, from football, and you came back and played. Uh, uh, it's just amazing. And, folks, we I'd, I'd love to be able to get into the whole story with, with Ken and, and what he went through. But uh, somehow that path ended up leading you to professional wrestling and then, of course, MMA. And uh, one thing that really struck me uh, – reading about you is uh you talk about i think one of the first trips you made to japan and um, I, I i don't know if it was minoru suzuki or masakatsu sanuki i don't i can't remember who it was that you went over there but you know like in wrestling they call it they stretch you to see if what you have inside and uh they went beyond that uh, what what they do with wrestling i mean they just i think you talked about being choked out a few times and I think it all relates to the way you, you say that that's the way you live there. Like there was no other option for you, but to keep going.
1: Yeah, I really was. I mean, I remember going over to Japan. I do a tryout over there and I yeah. went on um, almost, uh, I mean, I couldn't the exact time, but it was about two hours. Uh, and I literally got the snot beat out of me, but I kept getting up and keep going. Now, who uh, was It was, I actually started out with two young boys. Uh-huh. I went 30 minutes each with them, right. and then um, Suzuki and Fanaki came in um, right. towards the tail end of those working out <laughs> with the young boys. Uh-huh. And I was pretty much dominating the young boys, beating them up, you know, not very competitive. Well, then they came walking in, and then I did another 30 minutes each with each of them, and I literally just got just tooled. I mean, I got beat up. I'd never been handled like that before. And, uh, but mentally in my mind, I was thinking, man, I got to learn this. And I kept going. And I remember, um, uh, one of the uh, instructors there who brought me up there, uh, was asking me, Hey, uh, you know, you had enough. And I kept saying, no, I want to keep going. And I wouldn't quit. I just kept going because I felt like I, the more I was in there, the more I was learning and the more I learned, the, the, the more chance I had of winning. And so I just kept going until finally. I mean, Sammy Saranaka was the guy that I'm talking about just so said, okay, that's good. Mm. Um, and I went for about two hours with this and, and I got beat up, uh, quite a bit. And so for me, uh, that was, that's when I really realized like, Hey, this is something that I want to learn because no one has been able to handle me like that before. Mm.
0: And then and, and from that, I guess that was kind of the beginnings where you really, you know, uh, became, uh, one of the elites in that sport and, a lot of people, they see today the UFC, and it has certainly changed dramatically. But what was it like? When, I, I go back and look at some of these matches, and, you know, uh, barehanded, and uh, these, it just, can you describe the, the early beginnings of what MMA was really like? It, it, uh, it, it doesn't really uh, resemble, uh, if anybody really knew, I mean, it was basically street fighting in a ring. Uh, what was it like back then in the beginnings? And you were certainly one of the first to uh, help put that, uh, that sport on the map.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Cause I remember um, when the my, uh, fighter, one of my fighters had actually seen the flyer and he showed it to me. And I was like, Oh, that's not real because it <laughs> said anything goes no yeah. holes barred. Anything goes. And I was like, I looked at him and said, dude, that's pro wrestling. He goes, no man. They said this, I mean, and this is like fighting. There's, there's no rules. And I said, no, that that's, that's pro wrestling. No holes barred. It's pro wrestling. He goes, uh-huh. no, man, it's just like fighting. They got this thing they're doing. And so I pulled the flyer and I said, let me look at it. And it said that, it said, hey, no rules no, barred, anything goes, real fighting, boom, boom. And I said, okay, well, let's call him just to, you know, it's, it should be fun. Uh-huh. So I call, Art Davies picks up and he, I said, hey, so I got, got this flyer here. It says anything goes. And so I said, so what you mean is, is I can literally punch a guy with closed fist to the face while he's on the ground. And I'm on top and just pummel him. He goes, yeah. I go, so what about the guy on the ground? You kick him in the head when he's on the ground? He goes, yeah. And I was like, okay, whatever. And he said, no, for real. This is this is anything goes. And I was like, well, how is that going to happen? There's no way. I mean, there's rules and regulations. And he says, no, I'm serious. This is happening. And I said, well, I mean, I'd like to do it. And he goes, well, what are your credentials? And I told him, I said, oh, I'm champion over in Japan. And, you know, um, uh, Uh, we do mixed martial arts over there. It's not quite no holes barred, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's close. And so he said, okay, well, uh, let me give you a call back. Um, and let me check on, see what it is and we'll see whether or not we, we've got any room. Well, it was probably 15, 20 minutes later. I get a phone call back and he goes, yeah, we'd love to have you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he kind of figured out, Hey, I was a champion over there and, and it was exactly what they were doing except theirs was closed fist, no rules. So I ended up doing it. I remember walking into the very first fight. I flew from Japan after defending my title. (sighs) Flew into Denver, Colorado. And and, I mean, it's it's a mile high. So the air was really thin. I'm not even thinking this thing's going to happen. Like, I'm just like, whatever. We're going to get there and go, okay, here's how it's really going to work. So we get there. Press conference happens. And I mean, it's literally like it is going to happen. Night before the fight comes in, they tell us that we can't wear like I couldn't wear my shoes. Another guy couldn't wear his shin guards, and uh, and so the everybody was saying, "Well, I thought this was no holes barred." And yeah. anything goes, and said, "Well, those are too dangerous," and this and that. Mm. And of course, no one understood the gi at the time, but um, um, which was also a weapon that Hoist used. Yeah. Uh, but we couldn't wear our shoes. Like I was slipping all over the place. But so we go in there and we do this fight. And I remember thinking to myself when the first fight happened, I was like, "This is really happening." I mean, like. They're really going to do this, like mm. anything goes in a street fight. Yeah. And uh, so the first fight happens, and Gerard Goodell and Emmanuel a is a sumo guy against a kickboxer, a Savat kickboxer, guy from Holland. And he walks yeah. across the ring. He throws a right hand. This dude is four hundred pounds against a guy who's one hundred ninety pounds. <sighs> and so Gerard, the one hundred ninety pound guy, Gerard Goodell, throws a punch, hits the guy. He goes falling to the ground. He walks over and he football kicks him in the face. I mean, literally just boots him in the face. The guy's teeth goes flying in the front (laughs) row. And we had Superfoot Bill Wallace, who was a karate guy, Kathy Long, who was a kickboxer, and and Jim Brown, who was a a Hall of Fame running back for the Cleveland Browns. And they're all sitting in there and they're doing the announcing. And (laughs) literally, literally when this happened, It went quiet. It felt like a minute, right? It was a split second, but it felt like a total minute where everybody just went quiet. Even in the locker room where guys are popping pads and this testosterone was flowing and really nobody understood what was really happening. They just didn't understand it. Right. Nobody's ever saw anything like this before, but when that happened, everybody just paused. It was like, did that, did we just see that? He just kicked him in the face when he's on the ground. And, uh, I remember the first words that came out that, uh, that just kind of opened everything up was super football is going, he just kicked him in the face. His teeth came flying in the front row. (laughs) And all of a sudden people just started screaming and yelling in their locker room. I literally, I kid you not. There were guys in the locker room that said, literally came out of their mouths. This is not what I signed up for. (laughs) I was like, no, this is exactly what we signed up for. We just didn't realize it looked like this.
0: Well, and it's, it's certainly evolved, but, uh, Ken, for people who don't understand that mentality, uh, what is it, what is it that makes you step into that ring against, uh, in many cases, uh, tremendous odds, but just the, the simple act of, I'm, I am better than that other person, uh, in the ring. I mentally, physically everything. I mean, what, what is it that makes you step in there?
1: You know, you know there's certain, certain people that, that walk this earth and we see it all the time on on these different feats um that people do on these shows where people want to jump out of a plane you know with these these little parachutes on and try to see how far they can go without pulling the chute uh diving off bridges rocks you know high divers um there's just adrenaline to things about pushing yourself to the edge of doing things that other people can't do and i I think fighting, uh, especially in this type of fighting where where it was no holds barred and anything goes, uh, it was basically fighters challenging, literally guys that were tough guys, challenging themselves into a combat situation where there is no other way to do this. There's two guys walking in the ring and one guy's going to walk out. Mm -hmm. And really it's a competitive spirit that I think some people have in them that want to just challenge themselves to this elite level.
0: So, how did uh, professional wrestling kind of intertwine with all this? Because I know you started uh, with professional wrestling and then made the transition to MMA, and and then uh, were back in into it in the '90s with the WWE. Uh, how how did they connect with each other? And and, uh, and I will get into talking about how when you ended up in the WWE, which everybody wants to talk about, but uh, I, I just think it's really interesting that uh how those two combined in your life
1: yeah i think that pro wrestling was another way of challenging myself um it was when i first did it i thought you know what i'm just gonna try it my dad loved it um i'll give it a shot you know i played college football There was really nowhere else for me to go and and uh so i said you know yeah we'll give it a shot see what happens and so i just kind of did it just because i felt like well i wasn't doing anything else let's go try this Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I first started doing it, I remember thinking to myself, well, this is not bad. Like, I mean, this is pretty good. Because you had to do all these different moves and, and tricks and athletic, um, uh, you know, physical fitness stuff like backflips and being mm-hmm. able to do over karanas and just so many different athletic movements um, that challenged uh, a human being. And then on top of it, not only that, though, then you mixed in being able to act being able to tell a story with your body and with your actions and with your emotions and with your mouth, being able to speak. Mm -hmm. There was just so many things that tied into pro wrestling not just the athletic ability, because you had to be a a good athlete uh, to be able to pull off a lot of these things you were doing in there. But not on top of that, you had to be intelligent enough to be able to plan a match so that it made sense to the audience. So that it wasn't just something where it looked like it was just a bunch of paint thrown onto a, a artboard it really made sense. Like at the beginning of the match and the end of the match made sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was a lot of uh, a mental thought process that went into actual pro wrestling itself on top of being very athletic.
0: But as you know, uh, back then uh, that they used to refer to uh, a lot of the wrestling. They'd say, you know, like butter that, you know, that you, that the best guys were the ones that, worked so smoothly that you never really felt anything there was wasn't the the shoot act aspect initially is that what drew you to MMA is that you wanted that contact you wanted you know the ability to to absolutely uh, dominate and be you know the victor in, a, in an encounter like that well
1: we got to a point to where I felt like you know um I was doing this pro wrestling and I just didn't feel like I was being fed enough for my my ego to be mm-hmm. satisfied, I wanted more, and so that's when I started. Uh, um, actually, I actually came across it with Dean Malenko, who I was traveling with at the time. Mm-hmm. His father in Florida were doing these tryouts for these guys to go over and actually fight over in Japan. And I saw the videotape, and I said, "Dude, where where where's this?" And he goes, they oh, so doing it. They hold tryouts at my dad's gym." And I said, "Man, I want to do that." Yeah. And he looked at me. "No, no, no. See, that's that's shoot style." And I said, "Yeah." yeah. And he goes, "You want to." <laughs> Do that, and I said yes. And he goes, "All right, man, I'll hook it up." So I went down to Tampa and I did a tryout. Pretty much dominated everybody down in that that gym. And then he sent me to Japan a month later. Uh, Sammy Saranaka did, and that's where I did that tryout where I went in and I worked with those guys for almost two hours and just got the just the tar beat out of me. And that's when I realized like there was something bigger in the world than what I was used to seeing because I'd never been beat up before. I was always the guy winning fights. Mm -hmm. and uh i was put in this situation where i had these two japanese guys uh suzuki and finaki just dominate me and and i didn't like that feeling but i liked in a sense that i that it was something that i could learn Mm -hmm. uh and so there was almost a push pull right there was i didn't like the idea that someone was was better than me but then i liked the idea that there was more to learn
0: and and you went from there and uh i mean you, you pretty much accomplished everything i i believe you set out to do in those early years and and became uh you know such a dominant force in the world of MMA did it get to a point where uh you felt like you'd done it all and wanted new challenges and is that what led you to the WWE or how did that happen
1: yeah you know I mean I didn't wasn't like I did it all I mean I did I won everything um, yeah. you know much everywhere I went, I've always rose to that elite level and became the champion. But it was really a point in time where the organization, Bob Meyerwitz, who was who owned it at the time, SEG, they were constantly in and out of court. No matter what town we went to, they were always yeah. battling, uh, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get it sanctioned. And and even when they got it sanctioned, uh, they would have somebody come in and appeal it. And a couple of times we had to move it overnight. And so it just got to a point where they were spending so much money on legal fees that I when it was time for my contract to came up, that Bob Meyer which wasn't able uh, to pay my contract what I wanted to what I was supposed to get. And so I just told him, Hey, listen, you know, I, it and might and it's always been my first thing is to support my family. If I could do something fun and support my family, then I'd do it. But if I couldn't, then I've got to I've gotta support my family. And mm-hmm. so I wasn't able to do that. Not with the lifestyle that I had built with with the gym and Fighters and 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 I had kids and so I, I had a certain amount of money I had to make each month and I wasn't going to be able to do that fighting because they were all constantly in legal battles and so I told Bob myrits to at the time I had to go do something else and and we had we were left on good terms and so I that's when I actually reached out into the pro wrestling world the professional world WWF the the world where I could actually make enough money to be able to support my family and still pretty much. Uh, play and dabble with, with my submission skills.
0: Ken, we're talking uh, about, uh, you know, at this point in your career, this was in the uh, late nineties that uh, it was difficult really because there was a lot of legal uh, action going on with, um, with MMA, these organizations and that it was really, was tough to make a living and you saw an opportunity at possibly going to uh, work back in professional wrestling. Can you explain how that all came about? how you found your path to uh, the WWE?
1: Well, just like everything else I did, you know, I kind of like, um, almost like I ran my course. I did the best I could do right. uh, In and reached the level of the highest level that I could do. And then, you know, I kind of get those, those, those antsy feet of wanting to see what's next, you know? Right. And so for me, it was, you know, Pancreys reaching that level. And then of course the UFC reaching the elite level there. And then, And then really things not really starting to do well there. It was almost like they're constantly in court, you know, always fighting on on whether or not it was going to be legal or not legal. Uh, Even at times in some of the events they took, they basically said we had to wear gloves or you can't strike. And so a lot of things were really disrupting the flow of of MMA. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at that point, um, you know, they couldn't really pay me the money I needed. Uh, to support my family the fighters the fighters house the uh, the way that I kind of grew my business I couldn't support it with what they wanted to pay me and so I sat down with Bob Meyerowitz had a meeting with him and He said listen, I can't you know, I can't move on with what's gonna be paid I understand where you guys are at no hard feelings But you know like if I can't support my family then then I have to move on and do something else And I had no idea what I was gonna do at this point point. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did I moved on and so at the end of that um. Somebody did something. Um. At the end of that, uh, I uh, I decided, you know, why don't I look into some other kind of entertainment or an organization where I can actually kind of do what I do, uh, and and so I started looking around. I I looked at pro wrestling. My dad said, "Hey, you should try pro wrestling," and I was like, "Ah." I don't know. And he said, you could do moves and everything in there. And you know, you could, you kind of stay sharp. And I was like, you know what? All right. Let me, let me look into it. So I put out some feelers into Japan. I put out some feelers to WCW. I put out feelers to WWF and instantly Vince McMahon jumped on me. I mean, it was like, you know, white on rice. Soon as I was looking, I mean, he locked onto me and we got a deal done in 10 days. Wow. Uh, It was on Monday night. Raw. You know, a week after um, me and me and Vince had our first phone call. I was on Monday Night Raw. He flew me up in 24 hours after we actually signed the deal. He flew me up and I was on Raw the first time, uh, 24 hours after I signed the deal. So he had an idea, he had a thought and a and direction he wanted to go uh, because all of his superstars were gone. They were over at WCW, and so he needed to think outside the box kind of what's going on in the world today. What do people like? And that's something I think Vince has always been very creative with and always very uh, brilliant is always trying to figure out the next step. And kind of like what I did with my career, you know, always reaching that level, but not being satisfied. Like it's okay. What's next.
0: Right. And, and, uh, you know, you, you had had experience in professional wrestling early on in your career. So it wasn't something you were just stepping into and not, you know, really didn't know uh, what it was about. And, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, and I mentioned this before. They, they uh, when you were in the ring in wrestling, you know, uh, they called it you know uh, working like butter. You know, everybody it was supposed to be uh, you know smooth, and you never really ever hurt anybody. And I I heard you comment on when you arrived in the WWE at this point, and this was just when the you know the Attitude Era was really coming together. That uh, you were a little bit worried about you know being in that ring and it not being in a sense what we call you know stiff enough. But I think you said, uh, right away, uh, you were pretty impressed by what was happening in that ring at the time.
1: Well, the attitude error hadn't started. Uh, yeah. you know, there was no attitude error. They were, they were dying with numbers. And so when they brought me in, Vince had this idea about changing the way pro wrestling was right. going beyond the, the guidelines and the box that we're all stuffed in and thinking outside of it, how do we be creative and do things differently? So when I got there, um, you know, Vince just told me, and Bret Hart was the one that really drilled it into my head is just be you.
0: Uh-huh.
1: They didn't bring you here for you to be a character, they brought you here to be you, world's most dangerous man, and bring your attitude. And so when I ref that first match with Bret Hart and Stone mm-hmm. Cold, I mean, uh, that match right there turned pro wrestling on its head. I mean, people had never really seen or heard or even been around. Something that intense. Mm-hmm. Um, they put on a heck of a match with yeah. me being in the ring, bringing that no-holes barred MMA attitude and genre into the ring with Bret Hart and Stone Cold with the great match that they put on. It was like a match made in heaven.
0: Yeah. And and, and you started to slip right into that. Um, was it initially tough though, being around those guys? Because they didn't really know, they probably knew your reputation. But what it all comes down to is if you can work and if you can work at the ring, and how was there a, a, a lengthy transition there, or how did it come to, for, the, for you to become accepted by these guys and start working with them?
1: Well, it was tough because I mean, these guys all saw me going in there and beating people up. I mean, yeah, knocking people yeah. out, kicking their legs. I mean, they saw all this stuff. And here I was coming into this entertainment world, and they were like, uh uh-uh, uh, this is our world. Yeah. So I understood, man, these guys worked their whole lives to get there, to get to the mm-hmm. big state. Someone like myself who took a shortcut, you know, because I didn't have to put the time in that they had to. And so here I am on the biggest stage in the world. Uh, and um, there's some jealousy. There's no question. But I think once I got in there and, and I started, you know, basically saying, hey, to myself, uh, I, I am a, I'm I'm a rookie. I mean, I am green. And these guys all been doing this their whole life. And so I have to tell myself I'm not a superstar. I'm not a superstar. This mm-hmm. isn't my world. I am a very green person walking into this locker room. These people have all earned their place here. And so I need to treat them with respect and make sure no. that I go to them and let them know I'm here to learn from them.
0: And so who really was, I, I know you became very close with Brett, with Brett Hart. Uh, but who was it initially or was it Brett that uh, I guess, you know, they say t- took you under their wing or, you know, really helped you come along in there and be able to really fit into that world.
1: Yeah, Brett was, he was the one that that I went up there and learned from before I had my first match. I went to Calgary. I trained with him. He helped me uh, understand the psychology. Uh, Basically don't, 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 uh, you know, don't be something I'm not be me. That's why they brought me in and basically made sure that I understood that, you know, when I walked into a locker room that I, I go and make sure I introduce myself to everyone, make sure they know that, that I'm not here and I don't have an ego and that I'm here to learn from them.
0: You know, and it, it seems like it, you said it was before the attitude era, but when, uh, you really started to come into your own, that's when it was really starting to come together. And it seems like the timing was perfect because, you know, like Steve Austin talks about, you know, he threw sledgehammers and, uh, when he was in that ring and, uh, you seemed to fit right into that world was, was, uh, like I said, was it, was the timing perfect because that's what the attitude was becoming. And, uh you know, the WWE began to crest again and, and overtake, you know, WCW.
1: Yeah, it was those guys, um, Brett and, and Stone Cold went in there and especially with me being the referee. I mean, I was a little worried going in there. Like I was going to have to, you know, you know, ref this match where the punches weren't landing. And, you know, I knew those two guys that worked well and I really respected them because they did work very well, but I was also kind of going, man, if something lands, I can't act like they hit It's just not me. But after about a two, three minutes in the ring, and they started locking up, and they started doing all this stuff, it was almost like I completely forgot about any of the stuff I was nervous about because I was watching these guys beat the hell out of one another. I mean, they, 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 they beat each other up, and so for me, I it was almost like me refing an MMA match. Those guys literally went at each other, and you know, blood coming out of their face, and you know, I mean, it was just to me, it was just a match that you couldn't have put it together any better than that in that moment in that time.
0: Yeah, Well, and then as when you w- went on and, and became involved in these matches, you know, you worked with Shawn Michaels among the best in the rock and, uh, you know, uh, was it, uh, you know, be working with these guys and, uh, you know, you guys just went at it in the ring and was it an easier adjustment once you realized, okay, this is what we're doing with this. Uh, it's not like the old school anymore.
1: Well, all the guys bought into it. You know, yeah. I think at first a lot of them were a little bit nervous, but they brought guys in like Steve Blackman and you know, and, and, um, you know, you had mankind going off the top, everybody bought into this, this, this attitude, this, this toughness. Uh, that it was no more plastic and flipping your hair back and making sure your makeup was on right. These yeah. guys didn't care about that. We all bought into what Vince was putting out there, and that was we're badass wrestlers, and we're going to when we get in the ring. There's none of this pity pat that we're going to do. You get in the ring, you know somebody. We're bringing it now because it's the only way wrestling's going to survive right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Uh, during that run, and, and, you know, we really saw that just take off, the WWE was on top again, uh, you know, and, and you look in the vastness of your career, where does this part of it fit and, and how do you look back on it?
1: Well, I would just say, you know, everything was a transition for me. If one of them yeah. wasn't in place, I'm not sure how, how it would have worked out for me. Because uh-huh. I was an extreme kind of person. I, I needed more. So when I did paint race, it was like it was open hand strikes. It was aggressive. Yeah. It was in, I was in awe of it, right? And I was like, wow. I was doing pro wrestling at the time, and I was like, I want this. And then once I reached the level of that, then all of a sudden, MMA came out or No Holds Barred came out, UFC. And I was like, dude, I want to do that because that was another step in extreme. And yeah. so I jumped into that, and I reached the elite level there. And then all of a sudden, it started to fizzle like there was just no money there anymore. It was fizzling out, constantly in court, and they were battling, and I just didn't know if it was going to be around. So I had to make moves in order to protect my family. And so wrestling came in, and I was a little skeptical with it. Once I jumped into wrestling, all of a sudden, now I'm getting involved in a whole new world of wrestling. That wasn't there before, which was called the attitude era. When we jumped in there, there was no attitude. Once we put together a match with Bret Hart Stone Cold, we did that match. And then later on, as matches went on, they got more aggressive. They had the hardcore title. I mean, it just seemed like wrestling had changed in the right moment at the right time for me when I got into it.
0: And, you know, uh, what most people see is they would see what would happen on Monday Night Raw. But you were out there, too, going to these, these house shows. And uh, what was that? Uh, like that experience, uh, different from what you'd really been involved with before. And, you know, going to these house shows was very different than a lot of these television appearances. Did you enjoy that and life on the road and being in the car with these guys?
1: I did. It was uh, it was all a new experience for me and it it was fun. I enjoyed it. And being able to make these new relationships and being able to compete at a high level and be a part of something that was changing and new. And I was one of the main focuses of that so for me, it was all really exciting and fun. But then it towards the end there, it got a little bit old when they did the screw job on Brett and yeah. all that stuff came apart. And it just felt like for me, it was almost like my foundation had been ripped out from underneath me. Because now the WWF, for some reason, um, because I was, you know, working with Brett, which I thought that's what they wanted me to do. Now all of a sudden their relationship was strained. And now all of a sudden I was stuck in the middle of WWF and and Bret Hart on what side I was going to choose, and there was no choosing sides. Mm-hmm. I worked WWF or WWE now, but mm-hmm. my the guy that trained me and got me ready for pro wrestling was Bret Hart. So I wasn't taking a side against anyone. I just wanted to make sure that they knew I supported Bret, and it was a, I thought it was a bad thing that, that happened to him, and I wanted to let him know that I supported him. But at the same time, I still had to do my job, and I just seemed like I couldn't get that across. Uh, Brett was fine with it, but it just seemed like I think the wWF for whatever reason thought maybe that you know I wasn't going to you know be a, a company guy for whatever reason yeah
0: now uh your your encounter with uh, the nasty boys that that uh, is well documented and uh, in the end you came out on top of that with uh, uh between those two but w- overall were there any other uh confrontations, do you have any other issues with any of the boy, any of the other boys or pretty much did you get along with everybody else? Was there any, ever I, anything I, else? That,
1: I got along with everyone, you know, yeah. there's some discrepancies here and there, you know, with some stuff going on, but yeah. really you talk about any physical confrontation or anybody really just hating one another. I, I didn't have that. I didn't hate anybody.
0: Yeah. So at this point, you mentioned uh, pretty much after the, the Montreal screw job that, and, and you're closest to Brett, did you start, besides what was happening with uh, the company and, and you feeling that uh, you know maybe they were they were uh, turning their back on you a little bit, did you start feeling a pull to go back to MMA, uh, back to UFC?
1: I did once they started beating me. Uh, I was losing matches yeah. left and right, and I, I kind of got seen the writing on the wall. And so then I was like, okay, I got to protect my, because my character was me. I went in there as wasn't a character they developed. So I, then I had to start thinking about protecting my character, protecting who I was as a person and my, you know, my, my business, um, and my, everything I built over the years before getting there. And so I really started to think about that and had to make some different moves in order to get out of my contract so so that I could go back and really make some good decisions on whether or not I was going to go back into fighting or I was going to do something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, and I ultimately decided to go back into fighting, and I thought uh, that was another um, opportunity for me to build another company, help another company uh, achieve success, and that was the UFC. I went back into Pride, um, did some big matches over there, got their numbers up huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, made the, to the U.S. And then for Pride, I went into the UFC. They were dying, um, you know, they were getting thirty thousand buys or something like that at Max, with Tito was their champion. They couldn't get anybody to have a rivalry with them. I went back there just for one purpose, and that was to build up the numbers. They told me I couldn't do it. They said, "I don't know. It's not. We can't pay you because we, we don't think you can do it." And then on that first match, I did it. You know, I pumped yeah. it up 150,000 buys, which was you know quadruple or whatever you want to call it, more than what they're doing before. And I was the only different piece there. And so uh, the next match I had with Tito, we did over a million. So you, you can you see what it is is that all along the way that companies that i've been in and different ones i've been in i've always been there and been able to at least help those companies build up to success
0: yeah and had a lot changed during that break from the time that you were with the wwe it had a lot changed in the world of mma and and the business of it
1: there's no question man i, I came back and i realized that uh you know i was way behind the eight ball uh, the, the, the rest, you know, these guys walking into the ring were so much more sharper their yeah. conditioning's better. There's their striking and their their takedowns and their submission setups and everything was just so much more advanced Uh, you know being away from it for two and a half years three years, man That was like a that's like a lifetime. Uh, when you're talking about sports.
0: Yeah So anyway, uh, you know, it was uh, I mean an incredible ride uh, ken we could talk all day about this incredible career that you've had along the way uh, I did want to ask you about uh, about your brother, Frank. Um, I mean, a lot of people sound the, saw the Bound by Blood documentary and that you guys did uh, eventually, in the end of that thing, did get together. How's that relationship now?
1: Uh, I mean, we're good. I mean, it's not like we're hanging out you on talk Christmas. Or? Yeah, we don't talk, you know, but, um, you know, I mean, it's cordial, right? I mean, yeah. we're not screaming and yelling at each other. Although, I, like, you know, there's a times where, you know things are said or whatever but you know all in all man i just want to make sure that at the end of the day that you know it, it's i've got no hard feelings you know i mean we both did well we did what we needed to do um in our in our own prospective careers and yeah. and now that we've, we've got to move on yeah, yeah you know it's just the way it is and, and however he moves on i support him
0: you know uh i have a, a non-profit it's called doodads and it's uh you know, I grew up, I lost my father early on. He wasn't around. and this this organization is for kids who have lost their dads. It's also uh, for you know, kids that don't have positive male role models in their lives, and we help out, you know single moms and and these moms that are raising them. Uh, no one identifies better with that than you do. And um, Bob Shamrock was a huge influence on your life. And I don't think people really understand. The importance of having it doesn't have to be your uh, blood father, your your uh, you know, uh, but just to have that person in your life. And and how important is that? And and really, uh, I would say, I mean, say he saved your
1: life, right? Yeah, there's no question. Mine and, and Frank's both. Uh, yeah. He 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 did a lot of other kids, not just us. I mean, he just had that that character and that personality that he he really learned what really made kids tick and what, what their issues and problems were and tried to help them understand how they could deal with those different issues and problems that they had. So uh, he was a very unique individual. And uh, my mom, my mom, Dee Dee, who I have a relationship with now, also the same thing, just a unique, unique individual to be able to do the things that they did and to help so many of those kids.
0: And what, what is your message? Because I know uh, you know a lot of people know the Lion's Den. That's where you train some of the, the greatest fighters ever in MMA. But you also have Lion's Den Ministries uh, what is the message that you try and get out there to uh, well, you know, a lot of these troubled kids that are, you know, young and, and, and a lot of fathers or people walking away, uh, from those responsibilities?
1: Well, you know, one thing that you, you, I think the hardest thing is, is that everybody has moments in life that we're all very immature at times, you know, and yeah. Uh, the one thing i always say is is to always make sure that you have a uh and the the biggest message i can share with anybody uh and it's not now it's when they when they get to that point where they're mature enough to understand this uh is to make sure that they constantly leave room in their hearts for forgiveness because that's the only thing that will allow families and 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 kids and fathers to be able to come together when the moment is right if you don't have that room in there and you believe that, you know, you've done too much or that you're, you're, you're right. They were wrong. If you can't put all that aside and just say, you know what, it doesn't matter what happened, how it happened. If we're going to get together and get this thing to work and we have to put it behind us, start fresh. And you know,
0: there are a lot of kids out there too that may not have the gifts that you possessed, but, uh, if you wouldn't have had that drive and you talked about this earlier in our conversation, uh, you know, what do you tell them that no matter where you come from, if, if you have that belief in that and that drive that you will find success in life, that is that, uh, is that true? Considering where you came from, uh, you know, being stabbed in a robbery at 10 and, and not knowing where the hell you were going to end up. Uh, but you always said that you just never, never quit, never uh, believed that you weren't going to succeed somehow.
1: Well, when people say, you know, you you know, I'll never give up, you know, and a lot of people say these things or I'll do whatever it takes and they say, but do they really understand what that means? Because when you say those things, that's what, you know, you look at the wording on that's what it means. Like you don't just stop because you've done it for 10 years and things aren't working. So now all of a sudden you you just give up uh, or that everything has gone wrong and there's no way you can't see the end of it. Now, I always tell people, you know, when it gets to a point to where you feel like there's no more left, you have to take one more step because that's usually when things will break loose. You can't mm. say something like that or get into something like that and make a commitment like that without being for real, because it will push you to a point to where you will feel like there is no way I can get through this. And that's when you've got to take one more step.
0: Yeah. Uh, how can people get in touch with the uh, Lion, Lion's Den Ministries uh, or, or, or uh, some of your other organizations that you're involved in that that help these kids?
1: Yeah, you can go into Actually, my website's the best way to get a hold of uh, all my social media sites and, and my ministry is com. Everything's on there. So you okay. want to check it out, find out what we're doing. That's where we're at.
0: Okay. And, and what else you got going on? You're always so busy. I listened to your podcast, uh, the most dangerous podcast, by the way, folks. Um, But what else is going on with you these days? What do you, you? Well, we got a
1: lot of stuff. You know, a lot of business stuff that we're working on. We've got a lot of things called Pocket Shots going to be out on the shelves in Walmart soon. So, yeah. uh, we're we're really dabbling in a lot of different business opportunities with equity ownership and using my name as leverage for marketing.
0: Well, folks, you can uh, find out all that Ken Shamrock uh, is up to these days. Uh, he's still fighting. No, he may not be stepping into a ring, but uh, that's one thing you can count on. He will never stop. Uh, Ken, I want to thank you so much for taking time. I know you're busy, folks. You heard him busy. Uh, how the busy uh, people behind him. We actually had to do this in two parts uh, to track him down, but I really uh, appreciate it, Ken. And uh, best of luck and everything, and I hope we cross paths one day.
1: Yeah, man, I really appreciate you.